Support for the Game Podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the Game Podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 108 of the Game Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian, uh, a.k.a. Sends Triplets Gottlieb. There's no, uh, like, defining thing, like, the Sends Triplets or anything. It seems no, I, weird I to call you. Just, I think it's just Send Triplets. No, I, I know, but right. I, I can't I can't say Brian Sends Triplets Gottlieb. Yeah, that's a little weird. I'm sorry, I didn't think about the uh, the ramifications of my name choice on how you'd be introducing me. I just was so excited that we have a three-person cast today, and I get to do it with my two podcasting brothers. I, I, these are my triplets. This is my this is my group I'm working with today, and I was so overjoyed. I had to reference actually one of my favorite cards of all time. I really like send triplets, even if it's not particularly good. It was cool. Yeah, I don't remember exactly what it does, but I remember being like, "Oh, this card is sweet." Something yeah, it's a about sweet like- Esper, Esper card from Shards. I think go check it out. It's a very cool one. I think it's a Commander All Star these days. Maybe enough to inspire me to pick up a Commander deck someday. I get to finally use Send Triplets. Although I bet it's been outclassed by future printings now that they print cards specifically for the Commander format. Almost certainly. So yeah, we have uh, Mr. Jonathan Carter, co-host of the Head Games Podcast. What's up, man? What's up? I'm pretty sure Send Triplets is. Like you pick somebody and they play with their hand revealed and you get to like play with their hand, isn't it? Oh, you get to like cast that? their card. I mean, it's yeah. been a minute since I looked at the I card. I just know think I love it. So. But we're going to check it out now. We need to know authoritatively what this card does. Or we could just move on. Yeah, we should probably just move on. But <sighs> okay, hi, I'm, I'm just going to think about you <laughs> guys move on. Here. I'm going to think about send triplets over here. Okay. And you guys have fun with what you're doing. Cool, Sounds cool. good. So uh, last episode, we had kind of this this questions thing going on where we solicited the fine folks of the Game Podcast Discord to ask us questions uh, relating to their greatest struggles currently facing them in Magic. And the questions were awesome. Last episode was really, really great, uh, in my opinion. And I hope it helps a lot of people. And we kind of separated the questions into two buckets. And I think that the questions that we're going to be talking about on this episode are things that Jonathan could help us with because we're not experts. And a lot of the things that I saw, I was just like, well, the, my actual response would be listen to the Head Games podcast. <laughs> so, you know, why, why not have Jonathan on the show? Bring the podcast to them. That's yeah, true. we can yes. do that. We Skip the middleman. We're basically just tricking them by putting this in, in the <laughs> under the game banner, you know? It's true. It's cool because I always end up reading those questions or I actually listened to the episode already. So I have an idea what was talked about. And now I'm in the position to actually like answer it instead of like shouting to myself what the what I think the answer is. <laughs> Old man well, yells at clouds. <laughs> yeah. Do you think there was anything that we messed up on the last episode? I'm kind of curious to hear your take on it if you have any feedback. No, I, I don't. I don't think I disagreed with anything. And in fact, parts of it, I was like. Uh, like pumping my fist. I don't know if I've like just 
morph the way Brian approaches magic. But if I didn't, <laughs> I'm just going to like take credit for it. But like when he's talking different things about mental approaches, I'm like, ah, I've got him a couple That's months awesome. later. <laughs> yeah. That is a good reason to listen to the Head Games podcast, right? It's like if you're morphing Brian's perception of things and then he's passing that on to the viewers, it's like might as well just skip the middleman, you know? It's true. Uh, anyway, yeah, these these questions all kind of fall under this the same sort of bucket uh, with uh, mindset and motivation. So some of the things that we're probably going to talk about are just getting bored with magic, not really wanting to play test or put into put in the work. A lot of stuff relating to social settings and just in, how do you interact with people? How do you get into groups? Uh, how do you actually cultivate this sense of belonging? And I think for magic players, like that's a big part of it. Like this is, is a very social game. And especially if you are going from like PPTQ grinder to like pro tour regular or whatever, it benefits you to get into a group. And that is not necessarily an easy thing. Uh, And then there's a lot of things to do with goals and uh, rating yourself and maybe some other people and comparing your results to theirs and everything. And then uh, my favorite one, which is entitlement. Yeah, we hit on a little of entitlement stuff uh, in the last episode, and I think it is one that comes up a lot in Magic, uh, a lot of expectation of results. And uh, if you listened to the last episode, you kind of heard my, I think I took a pretty hard line stance against what I perceived as some entitlement. And there's Mm -hmm. a reason for that. One of the most self-destructive behaviors I think you can engage in. So I'm sure we'll talk more about this as we move through the questions. So the first question is from uh, Drewski the Snowman. We have we have some fun uh, Christmas theme names going on in in the Discord at the moment. So, all right, everyone's got their holiday uh, ugly sweaters on at this point. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, the struggle with going into a matchup in constructed or limited that you know you are very unfavored in. In constructed, say you're playing Tron and you get paired against Infect, or if in limited, you're about to play an opponent in the finals and know they have a crazy deck with four good rares. How do you level your mindset so as to not go into that match of magic feeling like you're fighting a losing battle from the very beginning? And Jonathan, hmm. this this is you, man. This you're you're this up to me. bat. Let's go. And I know this from a magic side too. Like I play a ton of KCI, and that's like no shock to anyone who sees me on Twitter or is in the Discord. So like I know awful matchups. In fact, being one, like what Truski's mentioning, and you can't change the person you're playing against you can't change their deck you can't stack their deck so like your option there is to get really caught up with the stuff you can't control or you recognize like like the thing you can do is maximize your own percentages maximize your own outs so like if you just focus on doing everything as right as possible on your side of the table like you might still lose but like you at least didn't make yourself more likely to lose like i think the lesson here is really just focusing on the aspects of what's going on that you can control so for me i I definitely adhere to the school of thought where what's over and done is done and you can't do anything to change it so i i like yeah focusing on the things that you can't control it's like this is the person that you're sitting down across from this is the deck that they're playing and for me, when my back is against the wall, I, I think I fight a little bit harder, you know, because it's it's such a more rewarding feeling and a better story if you know you're playing KCI and you beat Infect or right. you you mold a four and limited and you actually beat them, you know. It's like once I'm on four cards, it's just like, okay, how can we do this? You know? Yeah. Yeah, I, these I, these are the stories I tell over and over. Like this is right. what I get pumped to do, that to have these kind of achievements. Some of the stories I still default to year, years later is like 
playing for a PTQ top eight and beating Sanity Grinding as five color control, which is like just the absolute worst matchup you could ever find. Or in my GP top eight at Grand Prix Atlantic City, I won on a multi four in top eight to move on to top four. And these are the kind of things that stick with me for years and years. These are the matches you should be pumped to play when your back's against the wall and there's almost no chance and you you know, find a way, find a new sideboard plan. And in the circumstance I'm talking about with the Saturday grinding matchup, I like leaned really hard on Kitchen Finks and boarded in a bunch of other weirdo cards. I think like maybe Fulminator Mages just for strictly beatdown purposes and found a win that way. So, you know, look for the things you can control. And I think that's a big head games mantra, right? Like we focus a lot on only spending energy on things you actually have influence over. We focus a lot on useful behaviors. What can I do in this situation that's actually useful? And the thoughts we're describing here, oh man, this is a horrible matchup. What chance do I have? Not mm-hmm. useful. Zero use in those whatsoever. Well, it's also kind of sweet. It's like an underdog story, right? Like, right. And, Everyone loves an underdog story. And, and in sports, like a lot of times you are concerned when you're against the underdog because like everything is on you to act like in, in Drewski's case, like it's on Infect to win. Like they're, you know, quote unquote, supposed to win. So you have that going for you too. Like the odds are stacked against you. And I mean, you just get to try as hard as possible to overcome what you're basically writing off as a loss anyway. So isn't anything better than a loss? Pretty awesome. And, and you're free rolling from the KCI side. Yeah. Because, because yeah. You're, you're supposed to lose, right? What if the infect player loses? They feel so bad. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they, they just have more to lose than you do. So I don't know. This, this kind of ties into just playing scared in general or just being scared. I think you just have to calm yourself, look at things rationally, and just make the best decisions that you can. Yeah, like and I think it's totally it. plausible. Sorry, Jonathan, I didn't mean to cut you off, go, but go I, I think it's totally plausible that in an alternate universe, we get the other side of this question. Someone writes us and yeah. says, I hate when I'm too far ahead. I feel all this pressure and it feels like I choke and do something wrong. You know, like that exists as well. So as the underdog, look to leverage that. Like people definitely feel that pressure of I'm supposed to win here. Again, in the sports context, it's something that comes up all the time in underdog matchups. You know, ones versus 16s in the NCAA tournament. The one is actually the seed that feels all of the pressure. They Mm -hmm. are not supposed to lose. And as we finally saw a one seed fall, uh, it was very much pressure that did them in and, you know, crumbling to their own kind of mental blocks. They're on both sides of the table. It's not just the person who has to overcome something that has to do this kind of stuff. Yeah, and with Magic, like it's very rarely that you're just playing one match. So this is usually in the context of either a full day of Magic or like a league, something like that. And if you get to win one of these matches that you're not supposed to win, like the amount of momentum you get off of that is massive too. And like that's just something else you can leverage. Next question comes from YoMan5, who has since updated his Discord screen name to be Snowman5, obviously. Well done. (laughs) I I struggle with being able to assert my arguments in magic without being either regarded as an authority or dismissed out of hand. How can I improve at giving my thoughts while still inviting constructive discourse? So this is, this is kind of an interesting question because not a lot of people are self-aware enough to really Mm -hmm. analyze this part of magic where it's just like, how do I effectively communicate with people? I think that one of the things that struck me about this question was I really wanted to know 
what Yeoman's motivation was for being able to do a better job of this. Because I, I think there's a couple, and I think in Yeoman's case, I know, I mean, he creates content. He's a streamer. Uh, I know that's something that's very important to him. And also he he's someone who I would classify as always looking for the next idea. I think he has a creative streak to his deck building and his magic play. And it's something that you know, he's he's done a great job with developing and and getting constantly better at. So I I think part of this is that he wants to be able to continue to improve his content and kind of his own deck tuning skills. But I could also see someone asking this question where they care just as much about winning the argument. And that's a behavior that I think isn't particularly useful again. A lot of times I find myself engaged in one of these magic arguments and you realize that someone isn't necessarily participating in good faith it's just about them being able to (laughs) assert their viewpoint and that's just not a good use of my time so in a lot of instances i'll just say you know what i don't have any desire to actually engage with this argument i've presented my point you may do what you will with it but i'm okay if you're not going to ultimately accept my conclusion as long as i know that i've done everything to present it to the best of my ability so that's one of the things I wanted to tap into here. As far as just answering the question, though, I, I think it's very important to use empathy and understanding the other person's side in any argument. And it's something I leaned on a lot in lawyering. You cannot assert your own position until you understand the counter to your position. That's really the key of all effective arguing is anticipating counter arguments and building your argument to cut them off at the past, not even give them a chance to get started. So that's the biggest tip I can give to effective arguing and effectively asserting your position. Yeah, I think his question here is interesting because it's like this fine line he's attempting to thread between he has authority, like he's had some results or like he, he constantly makes content. So he has that to grapple with. But then on the other end, like there, there could be people that just outright dismiss certain ideas. Like you mentioned, he, he brews a lot of decks. And so he's trying to find this like middle ground of how do I invite discussion without like people feeling like it's going to, to one side or the other. And um, outside of streaming, I feel like a lot of, of yeoman's interactions are written or like in written medium. So either it's like on discord, it's on Twitter. Um, and, and it's a lot harder there to convey intent because well, like we lose nonverbal. So like the, the emotive quality you're talking about isn't really there. And so I think just stating outright, like what it is, like if, if he's putting out an argument or an idea, like giving an idea or a question of what it is he's attempting to achieve with it, because then like people know what the intent is there. Uh, I think a lot of times asking other people for their point of view brings this to be a, like a two person thing or a multiple person thing instead of just like knocking down other people's ideas. But it's definitely a, a tricky balance. So I am basically only interested in finding the truth, but it is very difficult to actually get to that point. And I I would say that 99% of the time is just spent trying to get to that point, you know, and then everything changes, right? So rather than create content from a place of, oh, this is the truth, this is how it is, y'all need to listen to me, (laughs) I've shifted within like the last decade or so into just being like, these are the things that I believe to be true. They could change, but like, here is what I've learned so far. And I think that that has been enormously helpful for just reaching other people and like opening up a discussion. And I think that people 
don't see me as much of an asshole as as they used to. You know, it's like I I am there to just try and figure things out as much as anyone else. And I think coming at it from a place of authority is probably the wrong way to go about things, even if, you know, you did recently top eight a GP with Golgari or whatever, you know, like just because you have a lot of reps and a lot of good information doesn't necessarily mean that you're always going to be right. And I think that a lot of people just want to participate in the discussion and they should be allowed to. And I think that that is just how you have to handle any sort of interaction like this in magic. Yeah. I I think also if you, how other people see you handle when you're not as much of an authority. So like if you are talking, I mean, I think conversations in magic often are about deck lists. And so we hear a lot on the cast when y'all talk about different deck lists week to week, how you handle like that, that approach that you're describing, Jerry, I, I think for Yeoman, if how he handles conversations about, discussions that he didn't start like i think other people will see that also and then like that's another opportunity to to just kind of model what it is he's looking to get from discussions yeah and realistically all you need to do is kind of put in your two cents and then back away and Mm -hmm. people can choose to listen or not basically what brian was talking about and then after you're right for like the 30th time people will be like, oh, yeah, I I should probably be listening to this person more because they do constantly say a bunch of smart stuff. And I think that's just how you build trust and start to appear as an authority figure and like someone that people are more likely to defer to if they don't have as much experience or information as you. Right. Don't don't expect anyone to listen to you. Basically, force them to listen to you. And that sounds like more aggressive than I mean it, but be so correct that it's in their best interest to take your advice because you've shown yourself over a large period of time to have gotten many, many things right. It's really interesting, Jerry, to talk about your approach to presenting content and you know, just the kind of disclaimer that this is how I perceive things now. Certainly things can change. Uh, I could be wrong because I kind of, when I'm writing something or even when I'm doing the podcast, I feel like there should, I feel like that's implied in everything I'm saying. And you often find that people do not take things that way. (laughs) They're seeing your stance as like a hard line, Scarab God is unplayable (laughs) type thing, whereas you don't necessarily mean it in that fashion. You know, you're just using language that would portray it that way for you know, one effectiveness to kind of a little bit of bombast and to make an interesting argument. But I I do think that this goes to the listener side and the consumer side of content as well, that it's beneficial to engage with content and look at it as a flowing argument and not a hardline argument. Like this is the way things are. And if you don't agree with me, you're an idiot. That is never my intention when I'm writing something. It's not to put down an opposing position. It's to present things as I see them and hope you can benefit from my perception of the situation. Yeah, the Scarab God is unplayable is exactly the type of thing that I'm talking about where I used to say stuff like that. It's like, if you're not playing Cobblade, you're just wrong. If you're not (laughs) playing this version of Cobblade, you're wrong. And realistically, you know, the answer isn't that that steadfast, right? And things obviously do change. And very clearly, people do not react well to being told statements like that. So... Uh, It is just learning how to communicate with people. That's it. Yeah. 
quick book recommendation. Uh, it's called Presence, like not the Christmas ones, but like Being Somewhere by Amy Cuddy, C-U-D-D-Y. Um, in there, she talks about, it's called Warmth. And her notion is that people connect with you if they connect with you as a person and they don't really care about your authority or your content knowledge. And so like standing up and saying like, I'm right, here's why I'm right, here are all my credentials doesn't get you quickly adopted or trusted by people. But if you stand up and you're like, hey, I'm a person and I do things like other people do, uh, that they're more likely to then listen to the the content or the like expertise you're attempting to put out. And so that could be an approach too. Yeah, that's interesting. I think for the most part, when I am seeking out content for something specific, I do want the person who is just like, here are my credentials. This is why this is right, et cetera. But Regardless, I added that book to my Amazon cart. So sweet. <laughs> I, I think like there's a difference between filtering systems for content and what you're engaging with. For sure. And for I think sure. filtering in the way you're talking about, Jerry, like the, the easiest way to find the best content is to go to credentials a lot of times. I mean, you just can't deny that. But it's not going to be indicative of the best content in a lot of situations. And I, I know you know this. Part of the reason why yeah. I am sitting here hosting this cast with you and not whoever was ranked number one in the world at the time when you needed a new co-host. <laughs> right. So well, there, if you need like brain surgery, you're going to seek out the person who's very credentialed in brain surgery. But right, like- right. But <laughs> even then, I mean, even then, that doesn't mean it's the best brain surgeon in the world. You know what I mean? Sure, There's someone sure. new coming up with a new technique. But I do think it's an effective filtering mechanism and a good place to start. Yeah. Next question is from Andrew W who says as someone who is old and only started playing with arena, the idea of lurching into an in-person community, which I won't gel with in many ways is very intimidating quite apart from the physical execution of playing with paper and the worry about not knowing how to defend oneself from sharp practice. What would you say to players coming to the game from arena, especially outside magic's core 18 to 24 year old men demographic? Well, the first thing I would say is I I don't think that demographic information is accurate. Maybe I'm saying that because I'm sitting here 36 years old talking with With a a couple of other 30 plus year old individuals. I mean, I, I think the demographic has expanded well beyond that. I'm not saying that representation of other sexes is where I would like to see it at this point, but I also think that that community has grown a lot over the years. It's something I appreciate a lot about magic that it feels much more inclusive than it was in the past. Again, not saying there aren't miles to go because there absolutely are, but steps are being made in that direction. And I, I just don't think 18 to 24 really hits the note. When I think of the demographic, I do feel like I'm on the older side, mm-hmm. but I tend to think of it more 26 to 30 is the sweet spot in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially as you get to higher levels of competition. Right. The thing is, is that as Magic has gotten older, I think just everyone has aged up and there hasn't been a huge influx of new blood. So just right. over time, that demographic is going to shift upwards slightly. And mm-hmm. I agree with you that like the demographics have gotten like a little bit flatter over time, but not really to the point where, you know, it's it's really outside the base of just like male dominated mid-20s or whatever. And right. uh, semantics aside, I think that it is funny because as a longtime magic player, I have found that it doesn't matter what type of person I'm interacting with. As long as we have magic as a common interest, mm-hmm. we're mm-hmm. able to get along and bond. Yeah. Great I, point. I started playing in 94 
played till Urza block. And then I didn't play Magic again until just before Amon Ket. So I came back already having passed year 30. I, I don't know. I, I find exactly what Jerry's saying. Like people just bond over Magic. And in particular, once you get to diving into the competitive side, like people just want to compete and talk about being better at magic, the community that Andrew's a part of, like the whole discord is a wide range of ages. So I think this is one of those things where the first step is probably the hardest. We've talked about this quite a bit over on the other podcasts, but it's just like figure out whatever the, the first baby step is you need to do. Like just go to some like real low stakes local event and just go and and try it. I, I don't, I don't, I feel like you will be surprised by how, easy it is and and that's not to say it's not intimidating like that that makes total sense to be intimidated by it but like just try it yeah and i think there's a second approach you could take too. the the low stakes approach is great i also think like you said andrew is part of a community that is special and i Mm -hmm. know at gp portland there was often a table of what 10 to 15 people who had ties to the game podcast discord who would talk between rounds who got to know each other you've you've already found a community andrew and, you know, I, I think that one of the best things about magic is the ability to bring people together of all creeds, sexes, races. And again, I, I'm not framing this as a utopia. We have problems with representation and being as welcoming as we can possibly be. A hundred percent. I don't want to discount that at all. But I, I will say that I think our personal community takes these things very seriously. We try to mm-hmm. be as inclusive as possible at all times. And there are a lot of sub-communities at Magic, of Magic that take that kind of representation and inclusiveness very seriously as well. So I understand your sentiment, but I, I think there's a place for you in the Magic community. If it's something you think you want to pursue, I think the doors are open to you. Next question is from Retro. Uh, They say, my struggle at the moment is breaking into the professional magic scene and the proverbial old boys club I see even in the circles that I'm a part of, uh, which includes young MTG pros, that even when someone puts up a good finish, top eating an invitational, winning a GP, that people are quick to be dismissive and that your opinion doesn't really matter until the people at large accept you and feel as though your accomplishments have reached or exceeded some arbitrary point. Is there an old boys club? And if this, is the case, if this is the case, how do we as a community move away from a more isolated and closed off mindset? Jerry, I think I want to hear your take first. Yeah. Because if, if anyone's a member of, if, if there is an old boys club and anyone <laughs> here is a member, it would be you. So it's why don't me. we hear your take on the situation? Yeah. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, it is very much the case. And even as as Retro is talking about, there's, there's kind of like a young boys club too, you know, where it's just like, if... Basically, everyone who is at the top of the game gets together and befriends each other and then makes arbitrary decisions as to whether or not, like, who is, like, cool enough to join them. You know, it's like you're in high school, right? It's like you're you're not good enough for, like, the cool kids crowd, blah, blah, blah. And realistically, if people are going to be like that and not willing to treat you just like a human being and, and as an equal because of that, then you probably don't want to be friends with those people anyway. And... You don't need help from people who are at the top to ensure your place in magic or anything like you can very much be successful in magic however you want to by finding your own group of like minded people and just going to work from there. But that said, I do think that those institutions do exist. I do think that a lot of the pro tour stuff uh, and, you know, now maybe all of that is going to change or whatever, but who knows because we don't have any details, but 
it, it was kind of TRGR where the platinums and golds for the most part are the people who have been around for forever and they all work with each other and anyone who is trying to break in is not going to get any help from them. And it's basically just like these 15, 20 person super teams against a, a solo individual. And it's like, yeah, the solo person's going to win some of the time, but good luck really. And then those platinums qualify for worlds, which gives you more, more pro points, which makes it easier for you to stay platinum and blah, blah, blah. Like the cycle just repeats itself and it's pretty horrible. Brian just mentioned the like the game community uh, in terms of Andrew's question, but I think it's such a resource for things like this. In 2018, like testing teams don't have to be near each other, like they don't have to know each other a ton locally. Like we see all sorts of stuff pop in the Discord every time there's a new set, every time there's an event coming up. Like I had the opportunity Portland last weekend. Uh, like a bunch of us all went and got a house together, and like we're not exceptional at magic like i I was speaking for myself mostly but like we had a lot of success among people that were there and it's because everyone was uh they they previously identified that they like everyone that was going to portland that was a part of this had a same approach to wanting to be good and keeping each other accountable and not only working on the magic side of the game but also working on the the mental aspect and setting goals for each other and and reminding each each other of them and so i think discord has a good start for this as a foundation but i don't know that you need to immediately get in with the the old group so to speak and because there's just so many resources available now i kind of want to play devil's advocate for this question sure. i think that while the old boys club as we keep describing it, kind of a crappy way to describe it. But unfortunately, that is what it's mostly comprised of. I do think it exists, but I don't think it's as purposeful or nefarious as we're kind of making it seem. I think that what is happening is that the core of professional magic has been mostly a lot of the same faces for the past decade or so now. You know, a new challenger breaks in every now and then, but the the real solid core I mean, we're, we're picturing the same people right now. They, mm-hmm. they have been the faces of magic for a long period of time. And I think their exclusion of others isn't like purposeful. You don't get to be part of our crew. It's just that they like their crew. They found their crew. They know their friends. They've established their friend groups. And bringing a new dynamic into that group, I mean, I think that's pretty defensible. If you're, say, the ultimate guard pro team, and you have had success and you won last year's team series. Like, what's the impetus on you to throw a monkey wrench into that situation and bring on someone who has just gotten to the top of the scene or, or maybe hasn't gotten to the top of the scene is just someone that you've identified as a talented player. And I, I think those groups do things like that all the time. They go, wow, that person really impressed me, you know, and I, I see big things in their future. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they should be including that person in their circle, in their testing group, because you've already formed a dynamic. Now, I know I'm speaking to one very specific team, and a lot of other testing situations are much more fluid, constantly changing, constantly evolving. Part of that is because they're not very good, is the first part, and they haven't been able to form that consistency. But Jerry, what do you say to that kind of counter argument that it's less intentional exclusion and more just, this has worked for us. These are my friends. I'm going to keep doing things in this fashion. The counterpoint to that is that teams do do that, but it is often within people who are already in kind of the in crowd. 
people will have baggage or it's like, oh, well, this person just started living with this person or this person and this person work at the same place. And teams will generally just like add multiple new people per tournament because inevitably some other people are going to drop off or not show up or whatever. And that's how you end up with like team uh, CFB this season is like over 20 people, which is they're just 5% of the pro tour, you know, like it's not in your best interest to have a team that is that large, but they are not excluding people who other people vouch for, you know, the problem is, is actually getting vouched for. So, uh, to, to that end, I do think that it is just like still an old boys club type of thing where if you're not on the cool kids list, like you can't play. Meanwhile, you know, they're going to tell you like, oh, our team's too big, but then they just like turn around and add three new people to their team that are not you. So, yeah, I get the allure of all this. I, it's probably easy for me to just have this point of view because I have a lot of other goals in life besides pro magic because it's it's not what i'm good at <laughs> um but like i think there's a lot of things that people think they would get from breaking into those circles that they either can get better elsewhere like by forming their own group and like finding like-minded individuals and like just being better or they like just wouldn't get from those groups i don't have a ton of data for this assertion but i would be wildly shocked if pro magic teams have an effective testing environment they don't yeah i've i've worked with the majority of teams i think there are some things that they do well but for the most part it's just people getting together and playing magic and like trying to share information but not in like a reasonably cohesive way right yeah it reminds me of like early esports is very similar like you had a coach who was like someone who probably just stopped playing the year before and they were super young and they had no coaching experience and here they are like just standing back and watching people play solo queue. And it's like, yeah, technically you are practicing, you are like playing what you're supposed to be playing, but like, there's no organization to it. It's not actually doing anything. Maybe you through osmosis, like you're playing against other good people. So like the competition is good, but there's so many ways to get good competition now in magic that I I feel like this person would be almost better off like forming their own group, starting to figure that out. And, and, the way you get into the big group is you just, you just beat them. You just, you get, you get like way better. You practice better and then you beat them. Yeah. Another thing I'll note is that a lot of people on these teams join up with teams to help themselves succeed. And there is very little uh, of teams actually trying to help everyone else get better. So if you have that mindset and you want everyone around you to get better, then trying to join one of the bigger teams is probably not where you want to be anyway. Very fair point. I I think if you've listened to Jerry and I speak about the pro environment and our own team experience, it's pretty clear. It's something that we think is incredibly underdeveloped and uh, not a strong point of the vast, vast majority of magic teams. I will say that like we're starting to see first steps in the right direction. I know that big Z works with like Harayuya in kind of a mentorship coaching type role. So th- there, there's movement, like th- things are starting to be tried. I hope that, you know, as we move into this new era of magic with these top 32 players who are going to get to participate in the magic pro league, I, I mean, 
the first group that comes together and hires you, Jonathan, I think is ahead <laughs> of the game. I mean, seriously, this isn't just a plug, yeah. but like a, a serious effort with for a professional who has worked in the field, worked with esports organizations and understands like the type of improvements they could bring to the process. That's that's something no one is doing right now. And it, it's not something that the team preparation is focused on. And, you know, that speaks back to this question is, is this something you really need to concern yourself with? Like even whichever way you fall in this argument. And I think while I initially resisted, I I guess as I think back to my own experiences, there's certainly levels of access that you're granted both by like who you know and what you've done. And, you know, I've, I've both benefited and been excluded based on kind of where I fall on that spectrum. So, so they're real, but the truth is that I don't think they matter as much as we like to think they do. And they probably matter a lot more to people who aren't in them, right? Because your perception of it is that these teams are so important. And I, I'm not saying they have no benefit, but I think a lot of the benefit, it, the benefit can be replicated outside of the team environment effectively. Next question is from Matt Nelson, who had probably the most interesting take on this. His biggest struggle right now is other successes, He says, I want their success to be mine. I feel like I should have more success considering how hard I work. When friends are successful, it can be very hard for me to enjoy their success with them because I want to be successful with them, not on the sidelines cheering them on. And I I think it's interesting that he specifically said, I want to be successful with them. So he kind of feels like left out, not necessarily that he should be performing better than his peers. It's funny too, because Matt is one of the most empathetic and like, caring people I've ever met. He's, he's so invested in like the comfort and just presenting a good environment to other people. And for him to have this struggle, I mean, it speaks to a few things. I think it speaks to how much magic means to him. And, you know, that's, that's a good start, but I, I think you just have to be realistic with the difficulty of achieving success in magic and understanding how much there's going to be a lot of downs before there's any ups always. Uh, and then when you get the ups, you're going to return to some downs most of the time. Like there's, there's just a lot of failure inherent in magic and the success of your teammates is another point to enjoy while you're dealing with all that failure. I think that's the best way to look at it because their success isn't taking away from you. Yeah. It all just depends on how you define success, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. if, if you are working with a group of people and someone in the group is doing well, that's a success for me. And I, I know that Matt very likely feels that way. And it can be tough when it's everyone else in the group except you who ends up doing well. But realistically, like there's there's got to be a reason for it. It could just be small sample size type of thing where it's like given enough time and you two will have success. But it could also just be like you're you're thinking about it too much and putting too much weight on this. And then that just leads to this uh you know, self-fulfilling prophecy type of thing. I think what you said about like, what is success is, is the key part there. Cause it, it's hard in magic to not look at results. Like, and especially if friends are putting up results and you're not like that is I mean, the numbers are right in front of your face. And like, that's what a lot of people gravitate to, but I, you have to imagine that the way that Matt's talking about this, like he is working with other people to be better at magic. And so he has some influence over how they're getting better. And and like, you have to think that it's not just like skipping him. Like, like 
if other people that he's playing with are getting better and they're having success, he's at least a part of that. And he's probably getting better too. It's just sometimes the, the dice don't go the way they need to. And, and he might not be seeing the, the results in terms of record at, at a tournament. But like, I, I imagine if he were to, to pick apart his game, pick apart his preparation or how his teammates are doing that, like you'd see some successes in there. I also think this is a good time to check in with who you're working with, Mm. because I have been through a period where I worked with someone basically based on geographic proximity and the fact that we were both doing well at the same time. I didn't really think this person was a particularly good magic player. I didn't really like spending time with them. We were just kind of in the same place at the same time. And my resentment of their results was tremendous to the point that it affected my own ability as a player because I was I was so devastated by the fact that they were finding success and I wasn't, despite the fact that I felt like they weren't very good at magic um, and they were experiencing extreme success. So it was it was devastating to my psyche. I really started questioning if everything I was doing was completely wrong. Thankfully, that person turned out to be a tremendous cheater and was expelled from the game. So I kind of know where things fell in that case. But <laughs> during that process, it was extremely frustrating and damaging for my development as a player because it it, it just brought so much frustration to what I was doing. And really, the correct response was not to spend time with someone who I didn't respect as a player and you know didn't really like spending time around. I was just doing it because we had the same interests. And you know, if there's some of that going on, this is a great time to check in with that and be like, maybe I need to work on who I'm spending my time testing with. Because, you know, knowing how, again, how empathetic of a person Matt is and if it's someone he truly cares about, it's hard for me to picture him really being put off by their success. So I, I think this is a good time to check in with what does your playtest group look like? And it should be filled with people who you're legitimately happy for whenever they find, you know, top of the line achievement. Well, no matter what, even if you don't particularly like the person, or even if you do really like the person, it's difficult not to compare yourself to other people, right? Sure, sure. I, I can't refute that. Next question is from DT Lurch. They say, I struggle between wanting to actually play or play test games of Magic and wanting to just watch other people play Magic. The latter wins out far more than it feels like it should. And the the big thing that I would say about this is that watching people play Magic is probably a lot more fun than playing it yourself because playing Magic when you're trying to like play test and stuff feels kind of like work sometimes. And you just have to figure out what your goals and motivations are. Like, are are you actually trying to get better and learn specific things? Or do you just want to be involved in the sphere of magic while, while basically just not putting in the work that's required? And if you want to get better, you can also do that through watching magic. Like, you just have to be intentional with it. Yeah, like, is your goal fun? Cool. It, it seems like you know what what is more fun for you. Like, just do that. And if your goal is to get better... It also seems like you know what you enjoy more. Now now figure out how that that watching magic, that thing that you're finding enjoying uh, it, like enjoyable, like what can you do? How can you be mindful about what you're watching? What notes can you take? Whatever. But also like don't do that to the point where that then beca- doesn't become fun. Like just uh, yeah, figure out what it is that you're trying to accomplish. 
Yeah, that would be my advice too. Weaponize your watching of magic. Making make sure you are drawing as much as you possibly can from it. If it's the way you truly enjoy studying, if it's just the way you truly enjoy yourself, and you're not prioritizing what you're getting out of it, that's a, that's a whole different question. Like Jerry said, you have to really ask yourself, what am I trying to get out of my relationship with magic? And I think regardless of what your answer is, watching magic can be a part of it. It just has to be very deliberate. And it probably shouldn't be at the complete exclusion of playing magic. It can be at the partial exclusion of doing so, though. And and I think there's still takeaways to be gained from watching magic. Yeah, like one concrete thing I've done with watching magic is uh, when learning KCI or just like any time really that uh, Piotr Golgowski canister on Twitch streams, like I will screen cap his opening seven or six, like whatever he keeps or mulls and then I paste that to a group of people who are also working on KCI and like we discuss without knowing what he did like whether or not he kept or mulled and then we see what he did and we just like start to think about like why was his answer the same as ours why was it different like here's someone who's obviously very very good at certain archetypes and it's still enjoyable to watch but like there's a little snippet of it that we can use to alter the way that we're approaching the game yeah one thing I like to do when I approach magic from the side of just like watching versus playing myself is like play enough to learn the format Mm. or whatever deck I'm playing or what have you. And then watch other people play either with or against that sort of stuff to see what other people are doing differently than me, because it's entirely possible that, yeah, I can practice a bunch, but maybe I just like won't ever see a certain thing that someone else can potentially show me. And they might play matchups differently than me. Uh, And it might like go against my intuition and how I would necessarily sideboard and everything. But it is very beneficial to get outside help from, you know, anyone other than yourself. Next question is from Jeff Pica. He says, I feel guilty for playing arena for no value when I can be making money off of MTGO. But I obviously do one because it's more enjoyable than the other. And no matter what, you're going to probably need slash want an arena collection at some point and grinding to get cards is going to save you money in the long run, assuming you don't have to like put actual cash on it. So I think for now, at least like grinding up your arena collection is perfectly reasonable. It's only bad if you're supposed to be testing modern on magic online and you're playing arena (laughs) instead, you know? Yeah. Can't relate at all. I, I feel like I can blow up this kind of problem very quickly if you care about value at the exclusion of everything else, go play poker, go do something else. Like that's not why you're here. You're here because you love magic. It's okay to find enjoyment in the thing you're doing, especially when you're talking about like, if you're just talking about the cash value of tickets versus the cash value of your arena collection, who cares? The cash value of tickets is so minuscule at this point. Anyway, they'll probably be half by the time we, we finish recording this podcast based on (laughs) recent magic gathering online trends. So just do the thing that makes you happy in that instance. If you spend your life chasing value, then it becomes about only that and nothing else. And you fail to find pleasure in things and you, it's just a horrible road to go down when you're making all of your decisions based on the best possible monetary value. So I I say keep playing arena, the situation that Jerry described where you have like something specific that you should be testing on magic online. Like right now I have 
Grand Prix Vancouver in a few weeks. So I'm playing uh, Ultimate Masters on Magic Online. A lot of the times, do I wish I was playing Magic Arena? Sure. It's a cleaner interface. I generally like it better. But that's not the format I'm preparing for right now. So I'm playing Magic Online. And I'm cool with that right now because I do care about my performance at Vancouver. In the absence of that motivating factor, I would just be on Arena and not worrying about the fact that it's a net negative as far as money goes. Yeah, I don't have an event till Allegiance comes out, so I just get to play Arena. There you go. So Joey asks, uh, threading the needle between arrogance after I have any sort of okay result and total lack of confidence in myself. Middle ground has always been hard for me as a human and between the swings of variance and just how fast magic changes, it's hard to strike the balance between confident in my conclusions, but also being more willing to listen. Jonathan. Hmm. Yeah, like uh, situations like these, I think, come up when people attach like self-worth to outcomes. It's like trying to figure out why you were successful is 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 maybe the first step to being confident in your conclusion. So I don't know how much reflection Joey has after these sort of okay results or like even better than okay results. Like just go back and think about like, what are the steps that you took that led to that? I mean, you can have random success, but it's not very likely, especially if if it's a repeated occurrence. So there's likely things that you did like ramping up to those events that led to your success. And that's where you start to find your confidence conveniently this isn't actually a joke but uh brian and i talked a lot about confidence and where, where it comes from this week on head game so I, I recommend popping over to that cast whatever the order is of these casts coming out but there's a lot of sources that you can draw confidence from and i think they're they're likely already there and it's just about like distilling your process and figuring out where they came from yeah i don't have too much to add i i really w- would seize on the point of focusing on where your successes come from. And, you know, when you actually analyze them, again, if they are multiple successes, I think you're going to be able to find commonality between them, threads, circumstances under which you excel and can play at your best. And those are what you're going to use to inform your confidence. They're what you're going to build the foundation of your game planning and your preparation around. And as you do so, your results will benefit and you'll find more confidence. And as far as arrogance going too far, huh, this, this is something that I've had a hard time with. And I think it, a lot of it is more, arrogance is more about what you're showing outwardly than what you're doing inwardly. So if you're worried about being perceived as arrogant, make your confidence a quiet confidence, make it an internal confidence. Arrogance, I find, is when you're broadcasting your confidence. You don't have to do that. You can be internally confident and never say a word to anyone else about how good you feel about this event you're going to, how much you've prepared, how you know the metagame cold. Those don't have to be spoken. Those can be your internal justifications, your internal motivators for success. Just, Just keep them to yourself and you're never going to cross that line of arrogance, I think. Is it wrong to assume that arrogance in this instance is mostly just a defense mechanism for the lack of confidence in himself? Mm, it often be. is. I think it yeah. often is. I think it might also be like those situations where you let your confidence actually interfere with good prep. Like, oh yeah, I've, I've totally got this, but you're actually not confident at all. And it's just a way to like excuse a, a potential poor result by just not putting anything into it. I think if you allow that balance of confidence to get in your way, that's a problem too. 
So become more self-aware. Mm-hmm. It'll probably help a lot of this stuff. Yeah, so much of this. I mean, we say this on head games all the time. It, it comes down to a combination of empathy and self-awareness. You know, knowing yourself, knowing others. That's really the key to any kind of mental infirmity you might be facing. It's some deep reflection and and just really kind of taking stock of who you are, taking stock of why you're doing the actions you're doing. And you'll find a lot of truth in that. Sean Hunter says he 2-5 his last two GP day twos. And he's trying to understand uh, where he's going wrong, playing a good day one deck only to lose to the next day two winner's metagame, maybe losing to players better than he is, getting unlucky. Uh, it's frustrating to say the least, but I want to work towards improving my day two results. Small sample size we're working with here. That's the first thing that comes to mind. Sometimes you're just going to do poorly and you you don't have a lot under your belt to say it's a particular problem with day two necessarily. It could just be things went wrong. I think assigning value to day two is you know making it something special, giving it significance can be problematic because then you start going down the road of self-fulfilling prophecy, um, expecting to do poorly on GP day twos. I don't want to make too much of this. And it feels like you're kind of making a lot from a very small sample size here. And I would return to the point that magic is magic. And if you played well on day one, you played well on day two as well. And you just have to see what that means for your outcomes. Sometimes it may mean a two five. Sometimes it may mean a five two. We don't know. We don't have a big enough sample size. So I I wouldn't make too much of this breaking point that you're experiencing right now. Or maybe you didn't. Like maybe you didn't play well on day two and it is getting to you. I imagine there was probably a point where you didn't make day two and something happened between not making day two and making day two. And so now you've made day two the last two GPs and you haven't done well on day two. But if you listen to the first half of this episode or whatever the last one is that came out, uh, Jerry talks near the end of it about breaking down all of the countless decisions that happen even in a couple turns of magic and that might be where i would start like if you don't already have the ability to recall matches that you played or things you did in deck selection like start taking short notes after each match it like kind of just gets you in this habit of actually stopping and figuring out what happened and instead of just saying like oh, I, I went two five like there's so many details in going two five on day two that that aren't in that number and mm. it, it it could be how you're playing it could just be that day two is currently the the boogie monster for you and like you got to do something to to get past it i think brian's point of basically putting day two on a pedestal Uh, kind of puts things into perspective. And one of the overarching things between all the questions from both this episode and the last episode is that people are very quick to assign numbers and titles to things. It's like, oh, well, like I'm a PPTQ player and I want to become like a Grand Prix Day 2 player or whatever, or they put Day 2 on a pedestal or uh, an RPTQ on a pedestal or whatever. And even in Matt's case, where he's like comparing the successes of his friends to him, it could just be a case of like, you know, maybe they're not happy until like they top eight a GP. So going 12 and three is not even like a big deal to them, but it would be to Matt. Like, mm-hmm. why do you need to define all of these things? I went two five, my last two GP day twos. Like that's oddly specific, right? Like, why right. are you focusing on just like the, that 14 matches? 
Right. It's because you've assigned a special value to them. Uh, and that's, that's what it's all about. Like these day twos are meaningful for you. And that can, that can definitely do harm. It, it can create a problem. And that's why I, I think it's just important to forget about this distinction you're making and think about yourself as a magic player. Again, I mentioned this last episode. I, I do think it's one of the more poignant moments in the history of the game podcast. And that's when we sat down with Javier Dominguez and he talked mm. about his process for improvement and how he stated all he cared about was getting better at magic. He erased all of these achievements. He didn't worry about requalifying for the pro tour. He didn't worry about GP top eights. He just wanted to be better at magic and look where it got him. And I don't think that's a coincidence for one second. I think all of this should be mushed down to just focus on getting better. If you are getting better, those two fives will become five twos and then they'll become seven O's and then you'll be at the pro tour. And then if you're getting better, that's the only possible outcome that these things sort themselves out. So focus on the thing you can control, focus on your own preparation and improvement. And then all of these things become side notes in your ascension, basically. Yeah. Last thing that I like, I'm over dissecting words that don't give me a lot of details here, but like two, five on day two, I wonder like, were those losses like a snowball effect? Like maybe it's that losing changes the way you play magic. And once you start losing, you do things differently. You start playing not to lose you instead of like going for a win. And maybe what you need to figure out is like, how do I bounce back from a loss? Like there's just so many details that two five doesn't tell us. And, and if you can start breaking those down, like that gives you those actionable points that you can start working on. Also, Sean says it's frustrating. What is frustrating mm-hmm. about it? Like, if if you're losing, then presumably you have some actionable data points. Or even, like, mm-hmm. you're just playing seven matches of Magic. You should have some actionable data points. And that that shouldn't be frustrating. That should be enlightening and helpful. And, like, these are things that you can use to actually help get better, and that will increase your results, you know? Uh, so to just get frustrated by losing doesn't seem particularly helpful when you can use those as actionable data. Great point. Uh, So so some of the other things, other questions were uh, last episode, we talked about like doubting yourself and getting enough reps to feel confident in your decisions. Like when is enough play testing enough? Uh, Do you have anything to say on that, Jonathan? Yeah. Like, and I think there was an episode where y'all talked about the balance between like practicing and watching maybe that was actually when you came on our cast you talked about that a bit like how part of your preparation is watching yep Yep. yeah and we talked about a little bit earlier i don't know i think there there are like definitely mechanics in magic that you especially high mechanic or like high action decks like combos etc like there's aspects of that you need to get like certain amount of reps but like the the not useful for anyone answer is like it's really going to vary person to person and i think I think overall magic players aren't thoughtful with their preparation. And in particular, like if, even if they do put any effort into deliberately practicing, they don't connect that to what it is like when they then go to play. And so I think if people start taking like a, a better note of like, what is it that's actually going wrong in a match and then backwards planning to like what they could be doing before they even get to the competition day to like, to get themselves a level of comfort with that. That's step one. And then just 
any of the mental stuff too. Just like think about like what are your biggest mental barriers and like have a plan for those too. Sometimes we like, we, we like roll the dice and just hope, well, I, like maybe my brain will work today and it, it won't get in my way. <laughs> but like being thoughtful with that stuff too. And just being like curious about, you know, match to match, competition to competition. Like what is it that you are enjoying? What is it that's getting in your way? And just figuring a way to like set the stage for those things to align instead of like, letting it uh, just be based on chance. Yeah, it's really helpful. Uh, some, some other things that came up were imposter syndrome, anxiety, tilting, and tying results to your sense of self-worth. And I think that those are all things that y'all have covered relatively in-depth on Head mm-hmm. Games. So you just wrapped up episode 16. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, we're through 16 episodes now. And uh, I, I think... You know, having having Jonathan on, the purpose wasn't to do a hard sell for the Head Games podcast. It was just because he is naturally tuned into this stuff, and we our, our main focus is getting listeners the answers that they want and, and doing the best we can to help people improve. But at the same time, if this type of discussion is something that you find yourself benefiting from, I would say go listen to the Head Games podcast. I mean, I talk a lot about my own benefit from being part of it. I, I think. People who want to succeed at magic undervalue how important it is to deal with the mental aspect of the game. And that is entirely what we focus on on that cast. Um, And we do it with a broader perspective. We talk a lot about life. We talk a lot about careers. So, you know, if you're wondering about kind of our backgrounds in that situation, I think there's a lot of good information there and a lot of good story time that we get into. Uh, But Mm -hmm. just in terms of improving as a Magic player, I I think it's such a valuable resource. And it's something that a lot of your peers and fellow competitors are not appropriately exploring, which means it's an edge for you if you're taking the time to really think about your mental processes and how you're preparing for events. Uh, And I know Magic players love when we can find an edge (laughs) in a matchup. And this is one you get to take to every single matchup with you. It's funny, though, because you you say that they aren't putting as high of a priority on this, but it's like when you ask them the question of what are they this struggling they with ask most? About. Yeah. <laughs> I know. So it's crazy. It's like, okay, they recognize that this is their biggest struggle, but in the meantime, like, how do I sideboard in this matchup? You know, it's like, I know. You, d- I know. you don't actually deal with the thing that should be the highest priority, probably because it's too much work. And it's like a lot of unanswered questions and you, it, it's different for every person too. But yeah, these, these topics were covered specifically on Head Games, and I could have Jonathan rehash all the things that he's already said on that podcast, but I think it's just easier mm-hmm. to point him towards that. So, Yeah, I think the big thing, like for me, Head Games, like Brian mentioned, we talk more generally. It, it, if you're listening to this podcast right now, you are clearly passionate about magic and, and to a point that you want to be very competitive. And what you'll hear on Head Games, if you don't listen already, is we talk about just all sorts of ways to be more purposeful or just better at whatever you're passionate about. Like, so if you're a magic player, you will find ways to be a better magic player. And you might find out that those things also extend to the rest of your life too. And this is definitely an edge that all sorts of competitors use. Like you sideboard at most twice in a best of three match. You have to use your brain for up to 50 minutes. Like your brain is there the entire time. So put in the time to work on this side of the game too, and you will definitely see results. Well, I want to say thank you to all of the people in our Discord who asked us all these lovely, wonderful questions, enough to give us two full podcast episodes 
of dealing with this stuff. And I'm sure there's more too. you know, like I, we, we didn't go super in depth on any individual question. And I'd be curious if people just want to ask us or talk about this sort of thing from time to time, just like, you know, mm. maybe give us their second biggest struggle in magic or whatever, because <laughs> these are pretty fun to think about and answer and everything. And thank you, Jonathan, for joining us. Uh, your, your expertise is just a delight and we love having you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Uh, you want to sign us out? That's game.